This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, the Marines help out with some new pavement. And aviation events in 2020 honor World War II heroes. Also, EASA has some new rules coming for parts. The TriFan takes flight. All right, Dave, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Absolutely, and let's do some Hangar Talk. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week, really interesting guy, smart guy, Scott Denstead. He's a research meteorologist and also does some work for SiriusXM. This is going to be a real interesting conversation, Ian. I know you caught up with Scott, and I think he's going to have a lot to say about XM weather and ADSB. I cannot wait to hear what he's got. And David, uh, place that you've been, I, I have never been there, so you tell us all about it. Catalina, we talked about this a couple months ago when it started. The Marines actually came in and gave us a new runway. That's right. The Marines rescued the airport in the sky, Catalina Island, off the coast of California, Southern California. And when I landed there after our fly-in in Camarillo a couple of years ago, that runway was pretty chopped up in, and it was long overdue. So you could say the Marines rescued fellow aviators here, from what could have been a bumpy landing. Yeah. <laughs> now, you've not been to that airport, you said. No. It's called the Airport in the Sky because it's on a high plateau. And back in the day, the Wrigley's from, you know, Wrigley Gum fame. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, they helped develop it, and they had buffalo that roamed out there, Ian. There's a hiking trail that starts and ends at the airport. It's really interesting. There's some uh, some little lakes over there. There's a lot of wildlife, a, a lot of uh, Native American artifacts out there, too, to be honest with you. And there's a wonderful restaurant there at the airport in the sky, and I highly recommend their uh, hamburgers. All right. Fantastic. That's and their cookies. The cookies <laughs> also are killer. <laughs> yeah. Don't forget the cookies. Yeah. And before you call your congressman and say, you know, why are we wasting money on GA airports? You know, why are the Marines uh, doing this kind of stuff? It's, it's a training exercise. It was actually. Absolutely. Taught them a lot about rebuilding infrastructure. And in times of need, they need to jump and go. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, you think about it, it's like, obviously we talk a lot about kind of frontline fighters and, um, you know, pilots and all that kind of stuff, but there's this whole support staff, obviously in the military. And 
one of those are, are the CBs and part of the Marines that do this infrastructure stuff, like you're saying, and, and actually build up this infrastructure. And they need to do it quickly and in remote areas. And so they went out and essentially, you know, quote unquote, built an airport, which is a fantastic training exercise. Absolutely, because they'll need to do that in the field, you know, one day. Well, we hope they never do, but that there is a likelihood that could happen. So the experience is good. You know, of course, mm-hmm. they, they build bridges and roads and all kinds of things. And so this is great experience for them. Also, for folks who haven't been there, Ian, and I recommend that you do go, by the way, there is an area where you can camp overnight. And I need to tip my hat to Mike Jesh with the Cessna Pilot Society, who took me literally under his wing of a Cessna 182. And we camped out there, Ian, overnight. And it was beautiful. The stars were above us. The beautiful California golden sunset uh, in the background and folks just love that airport and it and back in the day the Wrigley family of course they had the Chicago Cubs and they used to practice over there too so this was kind of a unique environment there's a casino over there kind of there's a real small little uh, community at the bottom of the hill and so people still go you know they arrive by boat as well as aircraft but, of course, there is no bridge. You're either coming by airplane or you're coming by boat. Or if you're really bold, I guess you could swim. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, bold or crazy, I suppose. But, um, yeah, and I think one of the one of the coolest parts about this is that uh, the first airplane that landed uh, on the new pavement was a DC-3, actually, that was from the family. I love it. It's like a throwback in time, and that's a great segue, Ian. To our next segment. That's true. Yeah. So as uh, as I guess you, maybe if folks have been paying attention to the news and things like that, starting this year and then into next year, there's going to be a whole series of really really fascinating events uh, commemorating World War II. That's right, Ian. And, and as we speak, as we record this uh, the Hangar Talk podcast here, folks might start to hear a little bit more about the D-Day Squadron, which um, are a series of aircraft that are World War II warbirds and others that are restored. And we're talking DC-3s, C-47s, and others that participated in D-Day 75 years ago. And they are headed overseas to Normandy, uh, June 6th this year. And they're going to do a, a flyover of Normandy to honor all the folks who, who fought in that battle back in World War II. And there are other events coming up this year. You want me to tell folks about them? Yeah, yeah. You wrote this great story about it, so let's hear it. Well, we're going to have um, an Arsenal of Democracy flyover here in Washington, D.C., and that is going to be May 8th next year, 2020. So mark your calendars now for that. That's going to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II in Europe. And so this is going to be part of a five-day slate of educational commemorative events in and around the nation's capital, and the air boss for this event is, he's already 100 years old right now, it's retired U.S. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Bob Valshay, and he also participated in events in World War II as a pilot in a B-29 Super Fortress that overflew the battleship USS Missouri when Japan officially surrendered in Tokyo Bay. On September 2nd, 1945, and he was the lead aircraft and had to get the timing down, split timing, and this uh, show of force back in World War II was uh, basically to, to let the, the Japanese know that the Americans really meant business. And so he led these aircraft over the battleship as the official signature was signed over there with MacArthur and other dignitaries. So that is uh, one bookend of two bookend events 
in 2020 that helped commemorate the end of World War II. There is a second event that will be in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, and that coincides also with the end of the Pacific Theater, basically, and there's going to be additional waves of aircraft that they are they're still trying to get the plans together for this, but there's going to be additional uh, aviation flyovers in Pearl Harbor in the fall. So we've got either side of the country covered, and folks probably need to start making plans now to attend these two events next year. Yeah, very cool. You know, I, I think we were both at actually the last Arsenal Democracy flyover that was uh, over D.C., and that was a phenomenal experience. What was it like, Ian, when you were experiencing that? Tell me a little bit about, did it make you shiver? I mean, that show of force. Yeah, it was something else. And I think, you know, just having lived in that area and knowing, um, well, basically the only airplanes you ever hear in downtown D.C. are the ones, you know, flying off a of Reagan or helicopters going down the Potomac or something like that. And so, to see these airplanes fly directly down the mall, it was just fascinating. A really incredible day. And and honestly, to see it with a bunch of people who might not know the history or might not appreciate the history or know much about aviation, that really, to me, was the coolest part, is that you had people coming out of their offices to watch it, and and it felt like it really made an impact far beyond um, those of us who care about you know these airplanes and keeping them flying and that sort of thing. So I, I thought it was a huge, huge event. Absolutely, absolutely. And to follow up on that, Mike Ginter, who works here at AOPA, um, he's our, our airports guru, basically. He also is, uh, is heavily involved in this flyover, and he reminded me a couple of things, Ian, that are really important. Number one, if someone served in the war in 1945, and, and, and they would be 93 years old today. So this is the last time we, as Americans, you know, can honor a big anniversary of this war to the folks who fought it and the folks who lost their lives. Um, it, it was such an honor to be able to honor them. That's what Mike was saying. And the other thing is that the people that are bringing these aircraft back to life are basically private individuals that are keeping these warbirds alive. And so there's a lot of, a lot of financial commitment to that and, you know, a lot of, obviously a lot of maintenance. And it costs a lot to keep them going. But these are private folks who think that it's so important for everyone to remember that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. So, yeah, if you can do it, check out that Arsenal Democracy Flyover. It's it's totally worth the trip to D.C. And uh, and as, as well as Pearl Harbor. And, you know, if you can make it over for the D-Day celebrations in Europe, too. Just uh, some really cool events going on. Absolutely. Mark your calendars now for, for May 8th, September 2nd of next year. And if you're lucky enough to be there as we speak, June 6th this year. Okay, great. And hey, actually, speaking of Europe, I want to talk just very briefly. Uh, EASA, the you know European Aviation Safety Agency, they are going through a rule process right now that might seem like a little minutia and you know kind of in the weeds and that sort of thing. But we think there's potential impact here for the U.S. and and we'll talk about why. But basically, they're potentially putting in new rules that would make U.S. part makers have SMS systems, safety management systems, in place to be able to sell over in Europe. So explain that a little bit to me about the safety management systems, because this ha definitely has, has an arm that extends to the U.S. Does it mean that, if, that they have to meet 
the same standards as European standards for, for folks in America to manufacture these parts? Well, I think the, the concern is, so an S- a safety management system is just a really robust sort of detailed safety plan, sort of safety culture. You got to have people in place to manage it, that sort of thing. And, um, you know, it's an, it's an ICAO pro, you know, uh, the countries came together under ICAO and, and uh, adopted this sort of SMS standard. And I think one of the concerns is that the FAA might follow suit. So, yeah, if, you know, if you're going to sell a part to, to Europe, you have to have an SMS plan. But, you know, the FAA being that there's this re- sort of residual back and forth with uh, regulatory matters, there's some concern that the FAA will adopt it as well. And that could be a really big deal for some smaller manufacturers. Is, is, is it because that it's, uh, it's onerous or really hard to keep up with the, the mandatory reporting and the managing aspects of it, you know, failures, malfunctions, defects, that kind of thing? Yeah, that's right. I mean, basically, it's just a really heavy lift for small companies, many of which you guys know, you know, produce these kind of one part or two parts or, you know, kind of uh, these little, you know, especially for older aircraft and things like that. So it's, um, it's not really a requirement that we're looking for here in the U.S., Gotcha, gotcha. So it's 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 hard for the folks who are doing the one-offs and the little shops to to keep up with the big boys, and so it might lead to less nimbleness in the uh, in the process. Is nimbleness a word? I hope it is. I just used it. <laughs> it sounds good to me. Yeah, sounds good to me. Okay. So yeah, check that out. It's IASA. It's called a Notice of Proposed Amendment. That's their system over there, and it'd be an SMS for repair stations and manufacturers. So definitely something to keep an eye out for. And we'll be right back. All right, David, looking at the future, we've talked about these electric EV tall aircraft a lot of times. One of them, it's not, I don't know how you want to classify this. Well, it's a prototype of sorts. One of these things actually flew. Right, right. This is good. Actually, good news on the uh, electrical vertical takeoff and landing side of the world. The XTI Aircraft Company, they successfully completed the first flights of the TriFan 600. It's a hybrid electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. And it's a proof-of-concept prototype, as you mentioned, Ian. And I think they had some initial hover testing, and this is done out in California. And you've really been following the eVTOL a little bit more closely than I. What do you think this means for the future? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really cool anytime that you have a, a milestone like this. Um, this was unpiloted, unmanned, and it's a it's a 65% scale mock-up. And so, you know, these things do matter, you know, the scale in terms of is it really translatable to full size. But yeah, I mean, this thing, it, it, they had it tethered and, and it took off. It's this, you know, sort of ducted fan took off under its own power and, you know, was piloted remotely and and, uh, and hovered for a few minutes. And I got to say, the best part about this is they said, oh, it was um, stable in hover and had no problems throughout several runs. And that might be the case. But I think if you look at the video, it's like, I would not call that a stable hover. I think, <laughs> and I don't know if that's because <laughs> you would be... <laughs> You'd be hard pressed to call that stable, yeah. but you would you would be able to call it successful. I think that that you'd be okay with that. Yeah, I think so. Definitely successful. It's just kind of funny. It's like I you know chalk it up to the person actually operating the thing, and it's got to be you know I'm no uh, I'm no RC operator myself, so I can't really uh, fault them. But uh, it was bouncing around a little bit and a little side load here and there, and I but I think they'll get the hang of it, and it is really cool to see these things start to have some success. It is, it is. And so the full-size version will have a 300-knot cruise, uh, be capable of range up to about 1,400 nautical miles, and cruising at 29,000 feet. So we look to the future for that. Yeah, yeah. So keep an eye out for updates. I'm sure they'll fly the full-size fairly soon. 
And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a neat future, no question. Speaking of the future, why don't we take a look back at the distant past and 80 years of uh, aviation? Yeah, yeah. You uh, Tell us all about this, because you were there at the fly-in, AOPA's 80th anniversary fly-in at Frederick. As we record, this is about, it happened about a week ago. And I think you got to go on the website and check out the photos, because they're just phenomenal. You guys did a great job with the photos. So tell me a little bit about the days. What, 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 how did it go? Well, thanks for the compliments on the photos, Ian. And we had a great time here. We entertained thousands of fellow aviators here at Frederick, Maryland for the AOPA Frederick Fly-In. And that was May 10th and 11th. It was a great birthday party. And we had a lot of the warbirds from World War II and from D-Day here as well. We had six of them. And where else could you have a combination of camaraderie Short takeoff and landing contest, oh, a wonderful dinner, a uh, campout dinner, and also see some of the AOPA luminaries uh, take their turns on that short takeoff and landing contest, as well as the workshops, the seminars, and everything else that we've come to know and love about an AOPA fly-in. Yeah, just a, a phenomenal event. And I, you mentioned you know, a couple of things that were different about this one. Um, the DC-3s, some of which were on their way uh, to Europe, had stopped in Frederick for a couple of days, which was awesome. And then another thing that for me is notable is uh, three past presidents of AOPA, Phil Boyer, uh, Craig Fuller, and and current president Mark Baker together at the event, which is uh, just doesn't happen. That's right. And they were there to sign books, the AOPA 80th anniversary book about your freedom to fly. That was a highlight for a lot of people. And also they had a pilot town hall that all three participated in. Talked a little bit about uh, where we were and where we're going from here. And besides that, you know, with the, the past presidents uh, was definitely a highlight for a lot of people. I've neglected to mention at the top of this segment that we also had parachutists from the Liberty Jump Team, and they uh, jumped out of two aircraft right over the airfield in those World War II round parachutes, and it really, really took your breath away. It was uh, fantastic to see that, and I could only imagine, Ian, how it's going to be when the D-Day Squadron lands over in Europe this year and also does a reenactment next year with a very similar setup. It was just amazing. You had to be here to see it. That's very, very cool. So, hey, if, you, if you've never been to a flying before um, or if you want to hit another one, there's two more for this year. That's going to be Livermore, California and Tullahoma, Tennessee. Livermore's happening June 21st and 22nd, and Tullahoma's in the fall. That's going to be September 13th and 14th. So make sure you check those out if you've never been to one, like we said, or you want to hit another one because they are a lot of fun. Uh, you get to meet all kinds of folks from AOPA and just hang out around airplanes all day and eat. And I mean, it's like, what's better than that, right? There's nothing better than that, except for I will tell our podcast listeners that in Tullahoma, there might be the option to visit the Jack Daniels Distillery, which I did it last time we had a flying that way and it was worthwhile the excursions honestly Ian, the excursions that we have at these fly-ins are well worth the time to do it very cool very cool and hey we mentioned that this was an anniversary fly-in for us uh and just kind of a cool little side note uh the senate passed a resolution that commemorated aopa's 80th anniversary that was resolution 203 from uh, our friend senator james inhofe from oklahoma and tammy duckworth from illinois so just really neat, and it's a it's a proud time to be a, a part of AOPA. I was very happy to see those two commemorate AOPA's 80th birthday, and they are also big-time pilots and have done a lot for our country. So, yes, I concur with you wholeheartedly. Yeah, that's great. So, hey, let's bring on our guest, Scott Denstead. Um, Scott's a really 
incredible, really interesting guy. It's not too often that you get to talk at length with a meteorologist, a research meteorologist, as well as an active and successful CFI. And so Scott's got kind of the whole package, and, and he's going to tell us a lot about the difference between ADSB and SiriusXM and how to use those tools to the best of your advantage. Scott Denstead, um, thanks so much for joining me today. I appreciate it, Ian. Thanks. Yeah. So I mentioned in the intro you're a CFII and a former National Weather Service meteorologist. So tell me a little bit more about yourself. As a growing up as a kid, I've always wanted to had a fascination with weather. Loved, you know, anytime there was a thunderstorm, I would you know, run to the, the door and, and you know, probably was the um, epitome of a weather geek. But as, you know, as time went on, I realized that, um, you know, I was, I had a, kind of a vision like where, you know, all the, my, my classmates wanted to be astronauts. I wanted to be a hurricane hunter. So I wanted to fly in hurricanes. And I knew that was a stretch. So I went to University of Maryland and got my degree in atmospheric science and then ended up, ended up working as a research meteorologist for about five years or so. And then, you know, the government, you know, salary wasn't really appealing to me. So I ended up getting into software engineering and spending about 15 years in, in the software business. And, you know, I always wanted to learn to fly. And it was either go for my PhD or take some flying lessons. So I decided to, to lean towards that and ended up in the mid-90s uh, getting my private instrument rating commercial and getting my CFI and CFII. And then I got to a point where I said, you know, I could marry up my weather knowledge with aviation. And here I am today teaching aviation weather to pilots. Yeah, fantastic. So I want to get into the flying a little bit and uh, and obviously what you're doing today. But tell me a little bit about the National Weather Service and what you did there. I mean, you said you're a research meteorologist. What, what exactly does that mean? Well, you think about the fact that there's meteorologists that are out there in the front lines forecasting every single day. Those that generate our terminal aerodrome forecast tasks, um, as well as those that sit in the, at the uh, Storm Prediction Center or the National Hurricane Center. They're the front lines of, of weather. But you have this whole, you know, whole cadre of people that support them in the background. And that's kind of what I did. I worked in the, the modeling branch where um, they've generated the various forecast models that are out there. And so it was all based on numerical weather predictions. So I didn't, I didn't do any kind of you know, front lines forecasting. It was all based on kind of the research end of you know, how do these forecasters in the field get good guidance. So work to refine the models that they use on a daily basis, basically. Yeah, and do, I did a lot of analysis about how the models are performing. So I could, you know, basically say that in this particular case, the model performed well, but not in this other case. So, you know, it was more of a, you know, behind the scenes and kind of in the past kind of a research. Yeah. So coming to flying, I mean, it's not like you were intimately familiar with all the weather products necessarily. You, you had to learn that just like anybody else. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I didn't take an aviation meteorology course because it's such a small of all the meteorology. It's really just a, a niche market, if you will. So I had to kind of kind of regroup and and learn it, and that wasn't really easy. You know, there's lots and lots of books on weather, but they don't specialize in aviation weather. So, you know, I had to do a lot of that on my own. Yeah. 
So you left the National Weather Service. You said you were in software and then got into flying. And then in aviation, you, you've done a lot of really interesting independent projects. So run us just through a few of those. Yeah, I, um, I met up with the uh, Cirrus Owners and Pilots Association early on, did some training in Cirruses and sort of got in- introduced to that environment and helped them develop their pilot proficiency program. And then I, I enjoyed that so much that I decided, you know what? I'm going to take this show on the road, and I started doing live workshops all around the country, basically, you know, kind of weekend boot camp for weather. And then that went pretty well. And then I got to a point where I thought, you know, with the Internet and the ability to put all this uh, content out there, I started developing a uh, kind of an online workshop program that would be a subscription-based program called AVWX Workshops. So AVWXworkshops.com became my kind of way of of having uh, pilots come in and subscribe and learn about aviation weather. And then here recently, I uh, worked with a, another pilot uh, who was a developer, and we put together this new WeatherSpork app. Uh, so WeatherSpork is like a pre-flight planning tool that allows you to kind of find the most appropriate time to depart. And we have a neat, unique way of doing that that's actually patent pending. So we are in the process of trying to, to grow that too. And then today, uh, you're doing some work with SiriusXM. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, SiriusXM has brought me in to help them kind of get education out there on, on what SiriusXM is all about and kind of compare and contrast that to the ADSB products so that folks can understand kind of objectively that here's, here's what you get with ADSB and here's what you get with SiriusXM. So I can show them how, how much better SiriusXM is overall with the products you get in the cockpit. So I guess talk to us generally about, you mentioned, you know, that the differences between SiriusXM and, and uh, ADSB weather. So it's just kind of from a high level perspective, I mean, to a lot of people, they, they kind of look and feel the same. And so what do you think generally are the differences? Well, I mean, you know, the ADSB and SiriusXM require you to buy some kind of hardware. So that's, you know, you can't get away from that. Whereas, you know, SiriusXM requires a subscription and, at, uh, you know, a monthly or, or you, know, you can certainly purchase it over a, a course of a year. But the biggest differences between the two uh, really deal with how the, how the signal is received. In other words, with SiriusXM, all you have to have is visibility to the sky. And, of course, if your airplane's out of your hangar, you have that. Uh, whereas ADSB. That's a ground-based system, so you really have to have visibility to the ground stations, which unless there's a, a ground station at your home airport, in my case, Rock Hill, South Carolina, there is a, a tower there, so I can pick that up while I'm on the ground. But if not, you're not going to start receiving a signal until you're out pattern altitude or above. So that's probably the biggest difference. The products, for the most part, are very similar. There are subtle differences in and kind of how each um, platform provides their data. But, you know, I like to have a complete picture before I depart. With SiriusXM, I can get that. So, actually, you, you bring up a good point before you depart. Based on your experience, you know, as you said, as a weather geek and then a professional weather geek, um, what do you do through the pre-flight process to, to check weather and, and to make that decision of whether you're going to depart and at what time? Well, I think I've, I always tell all my uh, students that, you know, a good pre-flight is a precursor to a to making the best decisions in flight, and uh, and it can go the opposite way. Doing a cursory view of the weather will lead to poor decisions. So my goal is to really tell the story about the weather, kind of find out where the where the most 
interesting aspects of the weather are and kind of plot my route to avoid or minimize my exposure to those things. And so my goal is that when I get in the cockpit, close the door to depart, that I'm all, all I'm doing is executing what I saw during my pre-flight and monitoring that with Sirius XM weather so that I know that as I'm flying along, that if I start getting into something that's different than I expected on my pre-flight, then I can execute my plan B or C that says, you know, maybe I land early, maybe I go around to the weather to the south, or maybe sometimes just turn around and go back home if that didn't work out. Most of the time, the only real issues that come up are those situations where maybe potentially the forecast was a little bit uh, awry. And that does happen from time to time. So you always have to plan for plan B. Yeah. So are you, I, I feel like most people when they use ADSB or Sirius XM, they rely primarily on the radar picture. So um, I would guess that that's your primary reference as well. But talk through kind of what you're using to get that up to the minute information. Yeah, I think the radar depiction is probably the most common thing that most pilots use. And, and pilots are actually pretty good at interpreting most NICSRAD. But and there are a lot of subtleties that come about with respect to uh, any kind of uh, NICSRAD signatures you might see. But in the end, I also look for things like in the pre-flight analysis, you look for terms like thunderstorms, uh, for instance. But but thunderstorms you know, mean that that particular storm is producing lightning. But in reality... It's really more than that. Any kind of really nasty towering cumulus can be just as dangerous. So, and, and it may not be precipitating in an area where there's towering cumulus building. And, and as a result of that, um, or if there is, maybe it's not meeting the criteria of a thunderstorm, that it is lightning. So uh, basically we call those showers. So I look at things like showers or showers in the vicinity as a, a precursor for maybe a convective event that is about to unfold because showery precip is a convective process. So the, the issue is that I'm not going to be flying into an area of building cumulus because ultimately I know that that may end up turning into a, a really nasty, uh, severe or extreme turbulence event if I try to enter into those clouds. So it's not only using the radar depiction to kind of map out how that all is going to evolve or is evolving at the time and where it's moving to. But it's also understanding kind of, you know, telling the story about the simple fact that what do you call something one second before the light, first lightning strike? And, it, and it's called a shower. And so ultimately, you really need to pay attention to kind of what's outside the cockpit, what you're seeing with your eyes, as well as kind of what you're seeing inside the cockpit uh, with respect to the radar and all the forecasts that went around that. And there, the FAA is, is starting to, and I guess the NTSB to a certain extent, be a little more, uh, I guess, uh, proactive with their education into the latency factor of radar. So can you describe what that is and, and how it works? Yeah, latency is, is a definitely an interesting point to make. Uh, I think sometimes some of the discussion that I've heard will tell you that, you know, expect the picture to look even as much as 30 minutes old. You know, we know that NextRad takes a little while to, for it to, to do its volume scans. So therefore, when you're looking at a, a particular image, it's made up of multiple scans of that particular, all the radars around the country. And they put that, that together into a mosaic that gets uh, sent out to the pilots. Now, it takes a little bit of time for the, to build that. It takes time to, to essentially... Um, uh, do a filtering so that it only shows you actual real precipitation that's occurring. It filters out all the clutter, and then that gets uplinked 
to your particular device. And so when you finally get that in the cockpit, even though it may say, for instance, that it was received one minute ago, that product is probably somewhere in the order of maybe three to five minutes old. And then you get to stare at that for another five minutes, for instance, for ADS-B, but Sirius XM actually refreshes it every two and a half minutes. So I call that the stare time. So you, you stare at that image for five minutes or two and a half minutes, depending on what uh, service you're using. And the nice thing about that is that now, now you're out at the somewhere in the five to seven minute range. And of course, you have to also plan for the simple fact that you might miss an update or two. That could possibly put you into the 10, 15, maybe even 20 minute range. But I think it, it's doing a pilot a disservice by telling it could be on, you know, in most cases, you know, 20 to 30 minutes old. I think that's the wrong answer. And in my experience, based on what I see outside the cockpit, um, I usually plan for somewhere between a five and 10 minute age to what's out there in reality. So, and, and if a system is, is moving quickly, you know, 40, 50 knots, then that's pretty significant. And we know that at 40 or 50 knots, that weather can move a pretty significant distance. So often, you know, my rule of thumb is to try to stay as visual as possible. I always say, keep blue sky above me. If I can do that, I'm not flying under any convection and I'm in, in a situation where I can then uh, always be visual and I can pick out and look on the, the map where my airplane is sitting and look at where my route is and compare that radar depiction with what I see outside the cockpit. And I always try to go around, if possible, if there's an area of storms, I always try to go around the back side of the storm. That's the area that tends to be the most stable because you have kind of leaves behind some colder, more dense air, which is a very stable air mass. And so as a result, I kind of, you know, if I'm looking at, you know, maybe 15 miles or 20 miles down, I kind of aim right for the storm if you will. And by the time I get there, it's already moved out. So that's kind of how I, I look at this. And around the backside of the storm is usually the safest part. Hmm. Other than the latency, which you mentioned the difference uh, between SiriusXM and, and ADS-B, what are the differences in, in radar depiction between the services? Well, there's two classic things I kind of talk about is that both provide a kind of a same kind of resolution at the regional level. So when you're talking about region within about 250 miles of your airplane, both have about the same resolution of, of, of a product. But where SiriusXM is a lot better is they give you a national image at that same high resolution, whereas ADS-B uses a very low resolution product. You know, it's kind of very kind of blocky. When you look at it, you really can't tell essentially what's happening. And, and if you're in an airplane that's flying pretty quickly and you want to kind of estimate, gee, am I going to be able to get to my destination based on what I see? A high-resolution product is going to give you a lot better decision-making than that kind of really blocky pattern that's beyond your 250 look-ahead range. And my estimation is that, for the most part, Sirius XM tends to be a little bit fresher, meaning that when you get the product and you look outside the window or compare it against ADS-B, it seems like it's a couple minutes faster in terms of being able to give you the most accurate information. But again, it's for strategic planning, not for tactical planning. You know, essentially tactical means what you're going to do in the next 30 seconds or a minute, you know, onboard radar is, is what you would use for that. So it's really a strategic kind of a situation. And for the most part, both provide that kind of close in strategic capability. But for that long range planning, uh, Sirius XM does the best. And what about some of the other products? What are, what are some of the differences of those maybe lesser used things that uh, pilots have access to? 
Yeah, I think both products provide you with uh, a lightning depiction. The nice thing about the Series XM is it provides you all lightning, meaning lightning kind of comes in two different flavors. It comes in cloud-to-ground and intra-cloud lightning or cloud-to-cloud kind of lightning. The Series XM provides both of that, whereas ADS-B only provides you cloud-to-ground strikes. Now, why that's important is that if you go to some parts of the country, like the um, kind of the, the, the Midwest or even the Central Plains, what you're going to see is in a lot of thunderstorms, those particular storms are dominated by intracloud lightning. So, so Sirius XM is going to pick up on that. Plus, early development of storms tends to be most, mostly intracloud. Now, if you're flying in Florida, where it's kind of a two-to-one ratio, two intracloud strikes to one strike, um, then you know both are going to give you pretty much the same information. The other thing that kind of comes up from time to time is this new Cloud Tops product that was uh, recently introduced last year in the ADSB world. And in that, it's actually a forecast for Cloud Tops using a forecast model, whereas SiriusXM uses actual Cloud Tops based on satellite imagery. So, in, in effect, when you have a really rapidly developing system, what you're hoping for with ADSB is that it captures that in the forecast. But with SiriusXM, it's going to capture it because it's using actual data. And personally, a forecast is great if that's all you have. But SiriusXM, I think, provides the best of that particular class of, of products in terms of being able to tell you kind of what's happening. So as a weather system is evolving, especially a convective system, and it's, we're getting those updrafts, well, the Sirius XM product is going to tell you that that's actually happening, whereas hopefully the ADSB is, is forecasting that to happen. If the forecast is wrong, then you don't get the information you really want to know in terms of, of a rapidly developing uh, convective system. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. So there's there's lots of different ways to display both of the products, ADSB and Sirius XM. What's your best setup in terms of cockpit and how, how do you use it? Well, I, I like to, you know, I'm kind of spoiled in the sense that I like to use both. I like to have both available to me because ultimately we know that sometimes bad things happen uh, to good people. So we we end up losing one or the other. It's nice to be able to switch products like the uh, the Garmin unit where it actually has both ADS-B and SiriusXM capability. That particular unit itself, a uh, little bit more expensive to buy, but for the most part, has both capabilities. And you can then connect that to like Garmin Pilot. And that's kind of my favorite kind of approach is to use like Garmin Pilot with that particular situation where I could actually swap between the two. Yeah, interesting. I, I think in general, one of the biggest misconceptions about, you know, if, if I'm trying to tell somebody who is, wants to be a pilot kind of what it's all about, what I'm going to usually tell them is that the flying part of, of aviation, you know, landing an airplane, taking off, navigating and all that is, is relatively easy. Yes, there's some work that you have to do to understand how to do all that. There's some skills, you know, crosswind landings and such. But in the end, weather probably is the biggest variable uh, kind of keeping you from your flying activity and certainly is, is deadly. So if you are involved in a, a weather-related accident other than a landing accident due to wind, your chances of dying are actually pretty high. So, so weather is a is one of the biggest factors, and probably if you asked you know a bunch of pilots in a room what the hardest part of flying is, um, I think most of them would agree that weather is is by far the the most difficult of all the disciplines you have to learn to really master. And 
And that's why I hope to you know, make a big difference in, in the products that I provide, all the training I provide. I do one-on-one training with pilots via go-to meeting. So it's a kind of an online kind of approach. And so, for instance, if a pilot is going from point A to point B, um, I'm not their briefer, but I, I basically sit down with them and, you know, like, like they're looking over my shoulder using GoToMeeting and I share my screen with them and I walk through my WeatherSport product and show them kind of, you know, the big picture. I use a funnel approach, start with the big picture and work your way to the details. And we go through all the imagery in WeatherSport and that allows us to, number one, allows them to be able to see the, how does Scott do this, this process? And what is Scott looking at to determine, you know, whether or not this is a flyable situation? And I use that kind of as a teaching tool. And again, I'm not their briefer, but we, we do education on how to do that process. And, and overall, they walk away with education and they walk away some, with some great guidance for their flight they're about to take. Yeah, very cool. Anything else? I'm going to be doing a, a bunch of presentations at uh, Sun and Fun coming up, Oshkosh, I'm going to be going out to all the AOPA fly-ins. I'll be attending the Cirrus migration in Louisiana, New Orleans coming up. And if you happen to to be at any of these particular uh, locations throughout the year, come and come and see me. Fantastic. Okay, Scott, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. No problem, Ian. Thanks. All right, David, so you uh, you an ADSB guy or a Sirius XM guy? I'm an ADSB guy, and I learned a lot about it today, so I'm hoping that uh, I can put that knowledge to good use in the future. Yeah, yeah, very cool. All right. Hey, thanks to Scott and um, David. I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk. You can also find us on iTunes or at the Sporties Takeoff app and also in the near future on Spotify. All right. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.